Welcome everyone, we are going to continue our series on the figure of Abraham and today I'll be considering Abraham in the New Testament. One of the most fundamental questions we could ever ask ourselves is the question, who am I? Confronted with the question, who are you, could invite a whole array of answers depending on how you interpret the question. It might invite you just to reveal your name, it could invite you to Talk about your deepest philosophical or religious convictions, your standing in a community, some aspects of your family lineage, some reflection on your innermost passions, or indeed something else entirely. When ancient Jewish groups were confronted with the question, they commonly answered by recourse to the figure of the patriarch Abraham. Now, my objective today is to unpack why. Why was it that ancient Jews and Christians attempted to articulate their identity by recourse to the figure of Abraham? And of course, this question is still very much live today. After all, Jews consider themselves to be descendants of Abraham through Isaac, Muslims descendants through Abraham on the basis of Ishmael. And yet, according to St. Paul, Christians are descendants of Abraham on the basis of their faith in Jesus. Now, to say that Abraham was significant to early Jewish groups, including the early Jesus movement, is something of an understatement. Second only to Moses, Abraham is mentioned more than any other figure from the Hebrew scriptures, some 72 times in the New Testament. Now, as I've suggested, Jews routinely articulated their identity by recourse to Abraham. Indeed, if John the Baptist's critique in Matthew 3 and Luke 3 is anything to go by, being physically connected to Abraham was something of a badge of honour. John the Baptist was adamant, however, that being a physical descendant of Abraham didn't count for anything unless one could bear the fruits of repentance. After all, God could pick up rocks and make descendants of Abraham. Yet claiming descent from Abraham was something it appears even non-Jewish groups attempted to claim. Uh, in the um, intertestamental book of 1 Maccabees in chapter 12, the Spartans claim to be descendants of Abraham. You may remember that in Galatians 3, part of Paul's rhetoric for defending the superiority of the covenant that God made with Abraham over and against the law of Moses was his assertion that the law didn't appear for 430 years after the time of Abraham. Other Jewish writers, conscious that Abraham lived in the period before the giving of the law, tried to suggest that Abraham was still somehow a lawkeeper. Both the Jewish historian Philo and the author of the Jewish apocalypse, Second Baruch, claimed that Abraham somehow obeyed the law before it was written, that he was somehow beholden to an unwritten form of the law. When Jewish writers attempted to explain the excellencies of Judaism to Gentiles, they routinely used Abraham as a spokesman. Um, in fact, in sometimes they would actually take that passage in Genesis 15, 5, which talks about Abraham being told to look up at the stars and you know, imagine just how much, uh, how vast his progeny would be, and use that as a basis for claiming that Abraham was a teacher of astrology. Now, the truth is, trying to summarise the influence of Abraham in the New Testament would require several volumes. And indeed, many uh, important volumes have been written, including scholarly works by the likes of Nancy Colvert, uh, Roy Harrisville and Walter Hansen. Much more meaningful approach, I think, for our purposes today is to trace some key themes across a range of New Testament texts to show how reflection on the figure of Abraham helped to shape ancient Christian identity. I want us to consider two things quickly today, which I hope will invite you to do some of your own reflection on the significance of Abraham in the appraisal of your own Christian self-identity. The first thing is Abraham and the ancestry of faith. The second thing is Abraham and the resurrection. As a result of these, I want us to consider finally Abraham and the identity of God's people. So let's begin with Abraham and the ancestry of faith. Now, I've already alluded to the interaction between John the Baptist and the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew and Luke. 
All 11 references to Abraham in the fourth gospel are in the very tense exchange in John chapter 8, where, amongst other things, Jesus claims that no true descendants of Abraham would try to kill him, as it seems the Jews wanted to in John 8. In John 8, 39, this group of Jews assert very plainly that we have Abraham as our father, and their comment that they are not illegitimate children probably plays upon rumours that Jesus, in fact, was illegitimate. The Jews label demon uh, labeled Jesus' father as a demon-possessed and a Samaritan in John 8, 48. Jesus says that they're the devil's offspring because of their continuous lies. Needless to say, these texts uh, have been the source of endless controversy in New Testament studies. However, both in the Gospel tradition and in the Pauline tradition, what seems clear is that the early church did not consider physical descent of, uh, from Abraham to be the most significant factor for identity. And we see this most richly in Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9, where Paul writes the following. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, this passage emerges from Paul's attempt to determine how the Galatian Gentiles believed that they received the Spirit. This is Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Was it the result of faithfully listening to the gospel that Paul preached, or was it by observing the works of the Torah? And he answers his question in Galatians 3, 6 by referring to how Abraham came into right relationship with God. Now, initially, this seems a somewhat roundabout way of addressing the question, but the point is absolutely central to Paul's argument, which is this. Abraham trusted in the divine promise long before there was a law. He trusted in this promise and um, he had this trust credited as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15, 6. Now, the temptation sometimes is to think that righteousness refers to some kind of moral correctness. But in fact, linguistically, it refers to the condition of being in the right. In this case, it refers to the rightness of Abraham's relationship with God. Hence, Paul says that those who have faith are children of Abraham. He's effectively treating faith like it's genetic material. Abraham became the first of the children of God because of his faith, because he trusted in God's promise. And so to be children of Abraham requires the same genetic material, that is, faith. And this is the gospel which Paul writes was preached through Abraham, uh, according to Galatians 3.8. The Gentiles would be blessed by becoming the children of God through faith. Of course, for Paul, what this meant was faith in Jesus Christ, a point which he makes more explicitly in Romans 4. We'll come to that later. But we see a similar idea reflected elsewhere in Paul in Romans 9 verses 6 through 8, where Paul writes, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because are they his descendants are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. We do not become uh, God's children on the basis of physical lineage, seems to be Paul's point. And this, of course, is why John the Baptist was so scathing in his denunciation of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Abraham's offspring are, according to Paul, children of the promise. And remember, this is the promise that God would give Abraham and Sarah a son. Despite the overwhelming embryological odds of the aged Abraham and Sarah being able to conceive, they trusted God's promise that it would happen and they did indeed have a child. That was Isaac. 
In the same way, we're children of Abraham because we trust in the divine promise and not because we are physical descendants of Abraham. Our ancestry is not one of physicality, but one of faith. Now, I think this has huge implications for modern church life. Oftentimes, unity and familyhood in that unity is construed in quite artificial ways. We're not unified because we practice our faith in the same way, follow the same rules or have the same outlook on everything. We're unified by our common faith in the God revealed in Jesus Christ, the God who raised Jesus from the dead and who will one day raise us in the same way that he raised Jesus. And this leads us quite nicely into the next point, Abraham and the resurrection. In Matthew 22, a group of Sadducees, a sect of Jewish aristocrats mainly, who don't believe in the resurrection, try to demonstrate that belief in a resurrection was utterly irrational. And they did so with this uh, strange question about leveret marriage. If a woman's husband dies and she married um, her husband's brother to give her children, uh, and then that brother died, as do successive brothers that she marries, then at the last day, which of those brothers is her actual husband? This was the question that these uh, Sadducees posed to Jesus. Jesus claims that their entire uh, line of questioning is based on a false understanding, which culminates in the following declaration in Matthew 22, verses 29 and following. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This tradition of Abraham being alive points to the motif of Abraham as a witness to resurrection life. And it's something that we see commonly in the New Testament and elsewhere. It's further expressed, for example, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. The rich man has contempt for Lazarus during their earthly life, but following the judgment, the rich man is in torment, whereas Lazarus is said to have been raised up to Abraham's side. From there, the living Abraham issues challenges to the rich man. The author of Hebrews connects Abraham with the resurrection when he writes the following in Hebrews 11 in verse 17 and following. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So having trusted the promise of God, he would have a son to then be asked to kill that son. Abraham, according to the author of Hebrews, must have preempted resurrection. He must have um, looked beyond what God was commanding him to do and said to himself, God must have the power to raise the dead and therefore prophesied resurrection. However, the most pivotal text, I think, comes in Romans 4. Abraham's faith is sometimes talked about in quite generic terms, as if Abraham just had some general belief that God wasn't lying to him when he spoke to him, and that's what it means to trust. But actually, we can be far more specific about that, as Paul writes in Romans 4, verses 17 and following. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. When Paul speaks in Romans about faith, he speaks quite specifically of faith in the divine ability to make life emerge from death. This paradigm is curiously captured in the birth of Isaac when Paul writes, continuing in Romans 4 and verse 18, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. 
Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, citing Genesis 15, 6. So God was able to make life emerge even from the deadness of Abraham and Sarah's reproductive apparatus. The thing which God calls into being, which was not in this case, is in fact Isaac. What Paul goes on to argue is that the birth of Isaac, by virtue of God's promise, is actually a metaphor for the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. He goes on in verse 23. The words it was credited to him as righteousness um, were not written for him alone. But also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In other words, by believing in the risen Christ, Paul says, we've imitated Abraham's faith. That is faith in the God who can make life emerge from death. It's this faith, Paul is arguing, which is our shared gene, our shared genetic material, the things that makes us the children of Abraham, and therefore the people of God. In our attempts today as modern believers to articulate what we mean by faith, I would argue that it's equally important that we don't just simply treat faith as some vague notion that we get anything that we ask for. When we claim to have faith, we assert that we believe in the life-giving power of the God who raised Jesus from the dead. That is, we trust that our allegiance to him will always lead to life, to joy, to freedom and hope, even in contexts of death, discouragement, enslavement and despair. Paul observes this in 2 Corinthians 1 when he uses uh, the resurrection as a metaphor to uh, talk about how his suffering was relieved. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 1 in verse 8 and following. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we had felt that we received sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Paul had resurrection faith. That is faith um, which imitated the faith of Abraham. Faith that God would resurrect his life from this situation of despair and hopelessness that he faced from these challenges in Asia that he talks about. And that God would do that with the same power and efficacy with which he raised Jesus from the dead. So if we bring these two ideas together, then our ancestry of faith and Abraham's connection to the resurrection, we arrive in many ways at the final idea, the identity of the people of God. If we have the faith of Abraham, that is faith in the God who brings life to the dead, then we are truly Abraham's descendants and therefore the people of God. As Paul argues at the end of Galatians 3, he writes this in uh, verses 26 and following. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
This passage concludes Paul's argument about the identity of Abraham's true children. They are those who are in Christ, who've been baptised into Christ, who are clothed with Christ, who are one in Christ and therefore belong to Christ. As you can see, this is a thoroughly uh, Christological passage. It's very much focused on our connection to Christ. Paul is at pains to demonstrate that our connection to Christ makes us Abraham's offspring and therefore heirs according to the promise. And remember, this is the promise that God made to Abraham that he would have a son. In other words, the promise that life would emerge from deadness, which brings us right back to where we began. To be able to articulate our identity, that is, to be able to answer the question, who are we, is central to the human condition. We're not just religious folks or people who sign up to some uh, moral charter or attend religious worship. There are lots of people like that in the world, uh, and very often um, people who engage in these kinds of practices have little impact in the world. What we are, rather, is children of Abraham because of our common faith in the risen Messiah, a faith which is all about bringing life to deadness. And in this sense, our identity is our calling. Jesus's disciples are charged with bringing life to a world deadened by the effects of sin, whether that's in the pursuit of justice, our outreach to the poor, our support of those inside and outside the community who suffer pain, anguish and dislocation, be it mentally, emotionally or physically, or just by pointing hurting people to the God revealed in Jesus Christ, we are called to be life bearers, those who carry the body of the dying and rising Messiah in our very selves to bring healing to this world.